push my podium over here. Okay. Now, I heard earlier some comments when people opened their bulletins and dug out their notes. He's still in chapter 10. We're going to finish chapter 10 this morning, Lord willing. We want to talk this morning about how to prevent or to... Two dynamics that uh, the writer to the Hebrews spells out so that apostasy may be prevented in a person's life if they follow the counsel, if they follow uh, after the advice of the writer. There are lots of things that we need in our life, certainly, and especially as Christians. And these two dynamics, not saying that we are apostate or we are going to apostatize, but But these two dynamics would be helpful and effective also in our lives as Christians. But most especially, they're directed here towards those who are in danger of apostasy. Now, I just want to do some real quick review with you. There seems to be still yet some confusion in some people's minds. There are two things that characterize one who is apostate. What are the two things? Do you remember? The knowledge of the truth and the willful rejection of the truth. That that identifies one who is apostate. That's not the same as one who is a Christian and who is disobedient. There's a difference between the two. Okay? If you are born again truly... If you are a Christian, I'm going to suggest to you that you cannot apostatize. You've been given a brand new nature. You, are, you have a bent now towards God, not away from God. But it's those people who are in the process. Life is a continuum, isn't it? A long continuum, and, and everybody is at a different point on that continuum. The Christian life is the same. There are people who are on that continuum, people who are coming, people who are coming, people who are associating. But sometimes, some of those people will stop. They will not press on into full faith. Now we're talking about our Christian life, our Christian experience from the human side. There's two ways to look at the Christian life and two ways to look at the Christian experience. You look at it from God's side, you look at it from man's side. Or the human side. And we're going to look at it from the human side. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that those around us who we know, who we're sharing with, who are in that process, who are coming to Christ, who are coming close, that they press on into the faith. Fully. And we have two Two wonderful dynamics given to us by which we can encourage those people to do so if they will. Are you with me? Okay. Let's read, beginning at verse 19 again. We're going to back up and go read from verse 19 through the end of chapter 10, verse 39. And then we'll look at the verses 32 to 39 in a little bit more detail. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... To enter the most holy place. 
How can we possibly have confidence to enter the most holy place? By the blood of Jesus. That's right. By the blood of Jesus. Now remember, the writer is writing to Hebrew people, to Jewish people. Did they ever have confidence to enter the most holy place? What would it take for them to enter the most holy place? What is it? It's a trick question. They couldn't enter the most holy place. Remember? By the blood of bulls and goats, they could never enter the most holy place. Now, the most holy place is a technical term, isn't it? It's referring to describing the sanctuary in the temple, the inner, the holy, holy place, right? They could never enter. There was only one person who could enter in. Who was that? High priest. And he could only enter it one day. The high holy day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, right? Okay. So, imagine, put yourself in the place of these Hebrew people who never had access to the presence of God. They never even had the hope of that. Or I should say assurance of it, confidence of it. And so the writer is saying to them, Hey, we now have confidence to enter in to the holy place, into the very presence of God. And you're going, We could, we could, we can come into God's presence. We can, we can finally. Be in God's presence? Yes. What's the price? What's the price of admission? The blood of Jesus. He describes Jesus and his sacrifice as the new and living way as opposed to the old and dead way, which was the sacrificial system of the old covenant. So we have confidence. And he says in verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God. So we have access. We have access not only by the blood, but also we have a priest who has gone before us and who has made the way for us. Who intercedes on our behalf. So therefore, because we have this confidence, what do you think we should do? What's he say in verse 22? Because we can draw near, what should we do? <laughs> Let's draw near. He says we have this confidence What's holding us back? Let's get on in there. Right? So he says, let us draw near. What kind, of, what kind of heart should we draw near with? Sincere hearts. Sincere hearts. It's kind of like, come to me as a little child. Don't children come to us with just, they just open, daddy, mommy, you know? Until they learn our ways and, and then they begin to manipulate us, right? We're great teachers. So let us draw near to God now with sincere hearts in full assurance of faith. There's no need to doubt. There's no need to wonder. There's no need to think, well, can I really come? And and will God really, can I get? Yes, why? Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice has paid the price for my gross sins. His sacrifice has paid the price for all my past sins, right? Right? 
Is that all? All my sins. All my sins. Notice what he says. He says that we have been cleansed from a guilty conscience. That's a statement of fact. We have been cleansed from a guilty conscience. You say, oh, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that, that all my sins have already been punished, already been dealt with, all of my sins, all of them? Yes. And I, I shouldn't have a guilty conscience over them? No. Well, aren't you just, aren't you saying that people can kind of do what they want now? No. No, it's impossible for you, if you're truly a Christian, to go on sinning as you used to. Did you know that? Why is it impossible? Because you've been given a brand new nature. You're alive to God now. You have a bent towards God. Does that mean you're going to be perfect? No. won't be perfect. But one day we will. The point is, the great direction and emphasis of your life now is there's a new dynamic, and it's this new nature empowered by His Spirit that causes you to want to always lean towards Him. Have you ever noticed that it's hard for you as a Christian to sin? I mean, it is really hard. You have to work hard at sinning. You do. That doesn't mean that we're not going to be disobedient. It doesn't mean we're not going to slip and slide once in a while. But I mean, consistently in your life, you have to work really hard to sin. Isn't that great? And it's not all that difficult to be faithful to the Lord. It really isn't. So let us draw near... Verse 23 says, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who has promised is faithful. Hold on to this confidence. Just hold on. He'll drag you in. All you got to do is hold on. And verse 24, oh, and let us consider how we may incite one another on to love and good deeds. Now remember the context here. There are people in the midst of that Hebrew congregation. He doesn't know who they are, but he knows there are people who are in danger of falling away. They're on that continuum. They haven't pressed full into faith yet, and they are in danger of falling away. They've given signs. The word has come back to him. And so he writes this urgent letter bolstering their confidence in Jesus, bolstering their confidence in what He has done so that now they can have access to the very presence of God. They can be forgiven. They can enjoy new life. And they can have hope of eternity. And so he urges them to draw near, hold on, but also, in the midst of that congregation, hey guys, we need to be inciting each other. We need to be exhorting each other. We need to be encouraging each other. Is that critical, do you think? See, we don't, we don't, know. We don't know who's on the verge of quitting, do we? We all come in with happy faces. Come up the stairs, good morning. Hi, Pastor. How's everything? Oh, just fine. Bah! 
I know better. You know, just we just we need to be what inciting each other on to love and good deeds. We need to be encouraging, exhorting each other. If we're all to persevere, if we're all to to run the finish the race, he says, and let's not give up meeting together. Oh my, how we've got to continue meeting together, right? Got to be continue meeting together, Augustino, right, bro? Yeah. It's beautiful. Let's not consider. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us exhort one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So he gives this strong encouragement based on Christ's sacrifice. He says these are the things that, that we've got to do together to exhort, encourage, and cite one another on. And then between verses 26 and 31, he utters this very, very frightening warning. It's kind of like he turns a corner here and he says, now... He says, remember, if we deliberately, you might want to underline that word deliberately, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Now who could deliberately keep on sinning except one who hasn't pressed into faith and hasn't gotten a brand new nature? That one is going to go living their life just like they used to. They're going to revert back. If you quit, if you go back, no sacrifice for sin is left. You pass the point of no return. You're beyond hope of salvation. If you've received the knowledge of the truth, you know what is true, and you reject the truth. People say, well, well, can't people change their mind? Not at that point. The Word says there remains no more sacrifice for sin. People will not change their mind. They've taken a stand. He goes on and he says, the only thing that's left is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire, and that will consume the enemies of God. He says, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In ancient Israel, these people knew that if somebody rejected the law of Moses, just on the testimony of two or three witnesses, they were stoned to death without mercy. That's the law of Moses. He says, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. That is the scariest thing going. And then he, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, We know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. God, God will even all the accounts. And the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hopefully, He's got the attention of His congregation. He's got them sitting right on the edge of the chair. Now they're going, whoo. People are looking around. They're going, man, I hope that's not me. I hope that's me. And then He brings a very, 
very loving and earnest appeal. Verses 32 to 39 now. An appeal not to fall away. And in that context of that appeal, he sets forth two, two dynamics that will aid, if they're, if they're utilized, they will aid in keeping these people in the process so they will not, in fact, fall away. Here they are. Let's read them. He says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. That last verse is wonderful, isn't it? Let's look real quickly at this, these last several verses. These people, some of whom were in danger of apostasy, of falling away, he tells them two things. They're told to do, first of all, this. Remember. He's, he tells them to look back on what they had experienced. Look back on what they had experienced. What had they experienced? Insults, persecution, suffering, property confiscation. Look back on that. And we'll look in a little bit more detail at that in a minute. But then the second thing he says is what? Look forward. Look ahead. Look ahead to the rewards that would be theirs if they carried through on what they had learned of Christ. In other words, if they pressed fully on into the faith, they would receive rewards. Look ahead at those rewards. Look back at their experience, look back at what they learned, and look ahead at what was awaiting them. Let's look at the first of those two. He says, in effect, remember your suffering and your service. Remember your suffering and your service. These people obviously had a deep involvement in the church. They weren't just peripheral people. They weren't just kind of hangers-on. They weren't once-in-a-while attenders. These people apparently had a relatively deep involvement in the life of that church. They had so identified with the church that they even experienced the insults, persecution, and the confiscation of their property. To all the outside observers, and even probably to some people in that church, they appeared to be Christians. They appeared to be Christians, though they were not true believers. They sure looked like it. They knew the lingo. They could sing the songs. They associated. They went to many church. They even suffered persecution and insults. But apparently, they weren't 
true believers, although they gave all the appearances of being true believers. They hadn't suffered yet enough to actually drive them away, apparently. Question. Is it possible, is it possible for an unbeliever to have a kind of first love for Christ? Is that possible for an unbeliever? Let me, let me do it this way. Do we, do we hear about certain people, we hear about their life and what they do and so forth, and, and their wonderful glowing reports, and though we don't know that person, we hear about them, and are we attracted to them? Do we develop kind of a fascination or a fondness for them or an appreciation for them? Sure. Isn't it possible for someone who's not yet a believer to hear about Jesus, even to read the Gospels, listen to his words, observe his, his deeds, a man went about doing good, showing love and grace and kindness, mercy, Isn't it possible for somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus to be strongly drawn to Jesus intellectually and emotionally? Sure. I mean, even even all the all the 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 false religions of the world, people who 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 don't believe in Jesus and haven't trusted him as their savior, they'll still tell you, oh, we believe Jesus is a wonderful man, the greatest man, perfect teacher, great prophet, man of God, right? They have a tremendous fondness and appreciation for Jesus. The problem is they don't believe in him. So do you see how it's possible for people in a local congregation, especially some of these Hebrews, to be very fond of Jesus? intellectually and as well emotionally. Now you you add to that scenario the fact that they're they're involved in a a very apparently a very loving and very caring congregation. Doesn't that strengthen that attraction? Absolutely. So I would suggest it's very possible for people who are not believers to have a kind of first love Christ. These Jewish people who had not yet passed all the way into faith were so attracted. They had not yet trusted in the gospel, nor were they ashamed of it. They had been publicly insulted, persecuted, had property confiscated because of their association with these Christians. They believed the association was worth it. I like being with these people. I like being in their midst. These people are loving and caring. I agree with them about Jesus. Do you know how many people agree with you about Jesus? But they they have never made Jesus their own personal Savior? Lots of people nod their heads. Oh, yeah, I believe. Yeah, I agree. I agree. They put up with the suffering. They put up with the persecution. They put up with the confiscation of their property 
because they valued the association with these other Christians. But again, the problems had not yet caused them to turn away. They hadn't gotten severe enough yet. In verse 32, there's a phrase that I want to point out to you. He says, after you had received the light. What do you think that receive the light means? I mean, you can interpret it a lot of ways, couldn't you? You could could mean a lot of things, potentially. But if you interpret it in the context as we're discussing it, what do you think receive the light might mean? Could it mean after you had been intellectually enlightened? After you'd heard the facts? After you got the truth? These people knew all the basics of the gospel. They knew all the basics of the gospel. But knowing the basics of the gospel is no substitute for faith itself. They were well on their way to believing but they had not yet believed. Are you with me? They had not yet believed. So he tells them, remember. Remember. And when he says remember, it means more than just simply to recall. It means to carefully think back. It means to carefully reconstruct in your mind, experience by experience, truth by truth, all that you have gone through, all that you have learned. Reconstruct it with great care. Look back on all that you've learned, all that you know, all that you experienced. It's as if he's telling them, remember carefully all those experiences you had in learning Christ and in fellowshipping with his people. How terrible, how tragic it would be to fall back now when you're so close, to fall away. He says, you can't give up. You can't give up yet. It would be tragic if you had learned about the gospel, all that you'd suffered, all that you've gone through, to not have received the real blessing of the gospel. What's the real blessing of the gospel? Eternal life, isn't it? Eternal life. He says you've shown great respect for Christ. You've shown great respect for His people. But now put your total trust in Christ so that you can, in fact, become one of His people. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, of the four soils and the seed that the farmer threw out and he broadcast it and just kind of fell indiscriminately all four soils? There was one kind of soil that these people remind me of. That was the rocky soil. The rocky soil was, was, was a relatively shallow soil beneath which there was apparently a limestone ledge. The point being that when the seed penetrated... And it took root. The roots couldn't go down deep enough to give the plant the ability to withstand the external pressure. And Jesus says of that kind of soil that when the plant sprang up and the heat of the day and the persecution came, what happened to the plant? It withered and it died. I think that that kind of soil reminds us of these kind of people. He says, remember back, you had, a, you had great experiences. You showed great fruitfulness. 
But there wasn't enough depth there so that when the real hard persecution came, they could withstand it. They had learned too much. And they had experienced too much to have any excuse left for not believing. And so he urges them forcefully, he urges them gently to go all the way to salvation before it is too late. So the first thing he says is, look back. You've come so far. It would be a tragic waste to give up now in all that you've experienced and all you learned just to walk away from it. But then he says, the second deterrent is the prospect of the rewards to come. The prospect of the rewards for those who in fact believe, verse 35. He says, you know what the promises are. You already know the promises. You know how wonderful they are and you know that Christ will be faithful in fulfilling them. You know this. Don't let your confidence waver now. Claim those promises. Secure those promises. He says, look back. Look back and remember how wonderful it all once seemed. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? And and it was just like a whole new world opened up to you. In fact, it did. A whole new world did open. You go, wow, how long has this been around? This is great, you know. Lots of us were raised religious, but we weren't raised as born-again Christians. We were raised legalists, weren't we? Keep the rules, keep the rules, obey God, obey God. And it was a drudge. And then all of a sudden, you get born again, and your life changes, and now there's just it's a whole new world. You see things like you never saw them. And now you hear about all the wonderful blessings and promises that God has for you as a believer that Christ will fulfill. Wasn't it glorious? So he says, not only look back and think about it back then, but now. Now look forward to all those promises that are even sweeter today than they were way back in the beginning. Is that not true? These people needed endurance. They needed to persevere. That's what he tells them. They needed endurance and perseverance and patience to prevent their present circumstances from causing them to turn back. Sometimes present circumstances can be overwhelming, even in spite of the tremendous foundation you have, if you haven't already pressed on fully into the faith. Their enlightenment in the gospel, their suffering, their persecution, their loss by outward association, these things were not for nothing. They were not in vain. But it was not enough. It was not enough for them. They had not done the will of God fully. Look at verse 36. He says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God... This is critical. What is the will of God? What is the will of God? That you believe in the one whom he sent. Isn't that what Jesus says? 
See, when you believe in Jesus, when you put your trust in Jesus, when you believe in Him, that is doing the will of God. Fully. He says, until you've done the will of God fully, there is absolutely no way at all that you will gain His promises. They knew the promises. They had rejoiced in the promises. They had even suffered for the promises. But they had not yet received the promises. Why? Because they had not trusted fully in Jesus. He says, in effect, the suffering that you're enduring now, the trials and persecution that you're enduring now, that you need to persevere through, these things aren't going to last forever. But your salvation in Jesus will last forever. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Don't quit. Persevere. He says, the Lord is coming. He's coming. And He's not going to be late. People say, wait a minute. We've heard the Lord's been coming for years and years and years. And He hadn't showed up yet. According to His timetable, He won't be one nanosecond late. Now, according to our timetable, you know, we're always doing this. My wife is a flight attendant. Some of you know that. She flew for American Airlines for 20 years. Started calling her the airbag. (laughs) That's her joke. That's what they call each other. They say, oh, you old airbag. I didn't originate that. Anyway, she used to tell me, among other things, they used to tighten her jaw. I mean, just tighten her jaw. She'd be going down the aisle or something, and some passenger would go. She'd go. We do that to God. We demand that He come at our beck and call and do what we want when we want it. He is never late. He is coming, and He will not delay. He's telling these people, you need to hold on. But I can't go another minute. I can't take another step. You don't understand. I prayed and I prayed. And nothing seems to happen. You've got to go another step. <laughs> You've got to go another day. <laughs> Where is he? He's there. He's there, right, Karen? He's there. Just keep, keep going. Keep going. He's there. <gasps> Are you sure? Yes. How do you know? Because he says, I'll never leave you and forsake you. But I have to feel something. No, you don't have to feel anything. That's what we're going to talk about when we get to chapter 11. As we're waiting for him, in the meantime, he says the way to become righteous is by 
The way to become righteous is by faith. And he tells us, and the way the righteous should live is by faith. That's right. My righteous one will live by faith. In the midst of it all, no matter what's happening, my righteousness will, my righteous one will live by faith. I am coming, trust me. From the human side, beloved, faith is the basis of spiritual life and spiritual living. Let me say that again. From the human side, faith is the basis of spiritual life and spiritual living. Faith. Is knowledge, knowledge of the gospel essential? Sure. Knowledge of the gospel is essential. Is suffering for the gospel possible? Sure. Sure. Serving others in the name of the gospel, especially those who are of the faith, is that a good thing? Is that a wonderful thing? Is that a fine thing? Yes. And as important as those things are, and as real as those things are, Beloved, it's only faith that will bring salvation. It's only faith that's going to bring salvation. These people were involved. They were involved. They were involved. They knew. They had the knowledge. They indeed suffered. They served. They were involved. But they had not faith. And then he ends on a positive note. Verse 39. After he has warned them, after he has urged them, pleaded with them, he seems almost confident that some of them, in fact, would believe. Some of those who he was appealing to would indeed come to full faith. So much so, in fact, that he identifies him with himself with them and with all other true believers. When he says this, he says, but we, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But, he says, we are of those who believe and are saved. Oh, what a wonderful appeal and what a wonderful challenge at the same time to those people. Now, I want to conclude with you with one last question. How many people, how many people really want assurance of their salvation? What is the assurance of your salvation? What's the assurance of your salvation? Let me suggest to you that the assurance of your salvation is your perseverance. I say that because Jesus' own words are, He who perseveres to the end will be saved. And it's all by faith, is it not? I also want to suggest that we are aided in our perseverance, much as these people who are in danger of of apostasy were, we are also aided in our perseverance as we look back and as we look ahead. Do you know that there's a good kind of doubt? A doubt that makes you Double check, triple check. Paul says, check yourself out to make sure you are of the faith. There's a kind of there's a good kind of doubt. Every so often I sit down and I think, is this all true? 
Do I really believe this? Am I really a Christian? Now, we all live with ourselves, right? And we know our foolishness. We know our ugliness. We know our stupidity and our immaturities. And so sometimes we focus on that, and sometimes we think, man, am I really a Christian? So you have to kind of do this evaluation. Start all over again. Where do you go? You go back. You look back. You remember. See, I remember what I was. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> There's some people in this room this morning who knew me back then, too. I'm not going to tell you who they were. I remember what I was. I remember who I was. I remember what I did. And then I remember becoming a Christian. I remember how the changes went. I remember what, and then I see that. And then I remember reading and, oh, yeah, okay. And then I, I look around and I understand that the world and, and I see the problems and now the answers, the Bible gives in. Yeah, it's all true. <laughs> And not only do I look back, I look forward. And I look forward, and I think, now, if this isn't true, if all this isn't true, I still have nothing to lose, right? If the Bible isn't true, I have nothing to lose. But the Bible is true, if I don't believe, I have everything to lose in eternity to spend in hell. But the rewards are exciting, aren't they? I mean, just the thought of life, 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 eternal People say, well, what's it going to be like? Oh, eternal, eternal life, eternal blessing, eternal happiness, eternal work. You say, wait a minute, work? Eternal work? I thought, I thought it said, come in and enjoy your master's rest. You know, growing up as a little kid, I used to think, I used to think secretly, because I would never say this to anybody, because it almost seems like blasphemy. I used to think, because not knowing the truth, never read the Bible, I used to think, man, heaven's going to be boring. What are we going to do? You know, and, you, and all the characters and all the little pictures are what? Of, of little angels and flapping their wings, and people on clouds plunking their harps, and... Polishing their halos, and that's all the stuff I knew. No one ever explained to me. And I just think, heaven's going to be boring, man, until I read the Bible. And the Bible said, we're going to work in heaven. Aren't you excited? (laughs) You say, what kind of work are we going to do? I don't know. (laughs) I do know this, that we are going to rule and reign with Christ over a brand new creation. That's all I know. The Apostle Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of that which God has prepared for those who love Him. He is going to blow our minds. Amen. 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 So, beloved, remember, we're on a journey. We're on a journey with a destination. We're going someplace. We're going someplace. And that's a glorious place of eternal life, eternal blessing, eternal happiness. No more sin, no more disease, no more cancer, no more pain, no more death. But life. And life to the full. 
So, beloved, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who believe and are saved. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your great, great plan. Lord, that your will is that none perish, but that everyone come to salvation. I pray, Father, that we would be awakened anew as a congregation and that we would look at other people with a different understanding and we would note the urgency of the hour. Lord, we'd not be complacent, but that we would be more and more surrendered to your Spirit, prompting us, leading us to speak out, to tell others of Jesus. Lord, bless the church. We pray for a great, great renewal and revival in our midst for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. We love you this morning. Lord, as we prepare to take communion, we ask you to help us prepare ourselves. As we remember, as we think back on Jesus and on the insults he endured, the persecution he endured, and indeed the very confiscation of his own meager property. And Lord, as we look ahead to the rewards that he has made possible, I pray that we would be renewed. And I pray that our testimony to to ourselves, to each other, and to the whole unseen realm would be profound this morning. Thank you for Jesus. I want to encourage you to take some moments now. I'm going to ask the communion servers if they'll distribute communion. And I do want to bounce off of this morning's message. I want to encourage you, do look back, but look back at Jesus. And look back at what he has done, what he has experienced. And then look forward to what he has promised. And then as we prepare for communion, stay with me now, as we prepare for communion, as you're holding the elements, I want to come back, and, and I'm, I'm just going to ask you, several of you, just to spontaneously give thanks and name blessings that God has brought to your mind as you've taken these few moments to reflect. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. And whatever else that he may have put in your mind. And we'll have a number of people just spontaneously utter words of thanks that we can all enjoy and share with. Okay? If you're you're with us for the first time and you're a Christian, we invite you to take communion with us. The protocol is real simple. Uh, The trays will come down through the rows. Take a little piece of matzo first, a cup of juice. Hold on to them. Take these several moments for you to reflect in your own life about your relationship with Jesus Christ with an attitude of honor and thanksgiving. And then I'll come back and we'll all take communion together. Okay? All right.
take the time to reflect back and to, again, look forward, you can't help but be renewed and encouraged and strengthened in your faith. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. My circumstances may scream out against that, but the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me what he has done. The Bible tells me what's in store for me as I continue to walk with him. Everything inside of me longs for that. So this morning, I thank God for his blessing of eternal life that he's given to me. I thank him for the hope of glory that I possess. I thank him for the blessing that my family is. I doubt seriously if we weren't Christians, we'd still be a family. There's so much pressure today. I thank him for the blessing and the privilege of being your pastor. thank him that he's in my life. Is anybody else thankful? Thank you, God, for your
Lord, we have so much to thank you for. We can go on and on and on. We're eternally in your debt. Lord, as we take communion this morning, as we eat this piece of matzah and we drink this little cup of grape juice, we are reminded of the great price that you paid that we might have life and might know your blessings and might enter into your presence, enjoy your fellowship. Thank you, Lord. We could never repay you. We are eternally in your debt. All you want is for us to love you like you love us. Well, we love you this morning, Lord. Jesus took the the bread and the Bible says the night before he died, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he told them to eat it. He said, this is my body. The point being is that as bread is the staff of life, he would be the staff of our life. He said, take me into you. Depend on me. And when we eat this bread, we're testifying that we believe in Jesus and we're putting our, all of our hopes and all of our confidence in him. He is the source of our life. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust Jesus, if you've committed your way and you continue to do so, I invite you to eat the bread. The cup represents, of course, his blood. The Bible says his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says that life is in the blood. So by extension, his life was poured out when his blood was poured out. A life had to be given. The wages of sin is death. A life had to be given to make total payment for our sins. That's what this is all about. We have been cleansed by His blood. We've been cleansed by the shedding of His blood. Every other issue of our life we bring under that blood. We forgive as we have been forgiven. We've been purchased with a price. We belong to Him. This morning I would like to invite you to lift your cups in a toast to Jesus. To Jesus. Praise your name, Lord. We love you this morning. Shall we sing one last song? I know we're running a little bit late. If everyone would stay, I know Alan has a special song for us, and you'll be blessed. Let's all stand and praise the Lord before we dismiss. When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't putting on the Ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. Our God is an awesome God. Well, the Lord, he wasn't joking when he kicked him out of Eden. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. Return is very close, so you better be believing. Our God is an awesome God. Oh, our God is an awesome God. The void of the night.
you in Jesus name I bless you with the wisdom and the power and the love of God that we just sang about I bless you that those things would permeate your life this week you would know his power you would know his love and you would know his wisdom